Night Dog, walking you to the ballot box. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. So, two incredible things happened in the lifespan of ESCOM this week. Uh, one, the president, um, while well, the minister of cooperative governance, of course, with the blessing of their political principal, the president, had revoked the national state of disaster uh, pertaining to electricity under which ESCOM would have been operating. Similarly, the Minister of Finance granted ESCOM an extension and then a few days later after some angry tweets revoked the exemption it gave it to how it reports on fruitless and wasteful expenditure. To have this conversation with me to unpack some of uh, the complexities thereof is Kasi Tole, who's a chartered accountant, political commentator, as well as Sandile Soana, who's a political analyst and governance expert. Um, Kaya, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. ESCOM has a fundamentally broken balance sheet, right? Very. <laughs> so, ESCOM then pleads to the authorities that be for assistance to fix what is a broken balance sheet. The, the board chairperson says to the Minister of Finance, hey, listen, can you give us this little bit of reporting relief? We're not going to say we're not going to not report on irregular and wasteful expenditure. Neither are we not going to report uh, on crime and corruption. We just want to do it differently so that it doesn't impact or blemish our balance sheet any further. Uh, and that may put us into more trouble with ratings agencies. And we are institution that borrows and swallows a lot of debt. Surely that's a reasonable thing to ask. That's a perfect summary. I don't need to say anything. Literally, that's what happened. So there's two parts to it. So ESCOM does owe over 440 billion rand. Um, of course, they are not in the habit of publishing financial statements on time, so that number has definitely shifted. But nevertheless... <laughs> well, we are relieving them of some of it. Yeah, so the first part is that the National Treasury is going to take 254 billion rand out of that. And that 254 billion rand comes with particular conditions in that whatever funds they're able to raise on the back of um, you know that relief from the state must be used for specific activities. So they've been told that if you do go and borrow, it must be for specific, you know, very very important and strategically important issues. So that's the one part that happened in February. What they then also asked for was to say, look. After you've taken this 254 billion rand away from us, we're still going to have to go and engage with the capital markets. We're still going to have to mm. go and borrow for other issues. However, currently when we go and borrow, the first thing that ha happens when we walk into the door, the first question is, why do you have qualified audit opinions? And they do have qualified audit opinions. Can we pause there for a moment? To the layman, what does that mean, a qualified audit opinion? <laughs> A qualified audit opinion simply means that the Auditor General or whoever is appointed to audit your financial statements takes the view that the way the finances in particular of that organization have been administered has not been in compliance with either the accounting reporting standards or any other laws that you need to follow. In the case, it will be the PFMA in particular. Mm. So if there is uh, there are instances of serious deviations and non-compliance, the Auditor General says, look, I have a problem. So when the Auditor General says I have a problem, that is regarded as a qualified statement rather than a clean statement that says it's all fine. So as soon as she says I have a problem, that is the qualification sure. that we talk about. So a qualified audit opinion is not a good thing. Okay. So it, it walks into the doors of credit institutions. And uh, the first question they ask is to say, well, according to the Auditor General, you guys don't seem to know how to run the affairs with the money that you already have. So on what basis are you asking us for more money? So that's the problem that they have. Their response was to say, well, actually, a lot of the problems that the Auditor General identified are legacy problems. In other words, it is things that happened seven, eight years ago before we were even here. 
The only reason the Auditor General keeps insisting on talking about it is that in her audit processes for as long as the car or the engine or whatever was acquired through irregular means seven or eight years ago, for as long as that item or that service is still being used by the company, it is the fruits of the poisonous tree. So she will still remind you that, by the way, that car, that engine, that machine was acquired through an irregular process. So it basically repeats the same issues relating to old right. transactions until that car disappears, until that engine is not there. So what ESCOM argued was to say, well, at least there ought to be a distinction between legacy issues for which there's absolutely nothing we can do. I mean, it's yeah. there. Versus issues that we're fully accountable for. In other words, yesterday when we were here, what did we do? And if we did something wrong, we're happy to accept a qualification on the basis of that. But we're struggling to reconcile ourselves with the question of why we're being asked to explain things that happened 10 or 15 years ago, committed by people that we now know have been, you know, ventilated in other platforms. You mm. have been less than um, you know, <laughs> committed to the good fortunes of ESCO. Yeah. Give us a call, 086 I'm taking a voice note on 0614-104-107. So, Kaya, it seems to me then, if it is going to be the fruit of a poisoned tree, that ESCOM will just never in its lifetime, now going forward into forever, for however long it exists, will ESCOM be able to achieve a clean audit. It will always be a qualified audit. Surely then, some level of intervention through an exemption of sorts is necessary. Well, again, South Africans can be hysterical in instances, uh, and I, can, I think in this case it was legitimate. The, there's actually two parts to this. ESCOM could have simply said, well, we are going to go and apply for a condemnation in relation to all of these transactions. Condemnations are already part and parcel of what National Treasury does. In fact, National Treasury spends a lot of time entertaining applications for deviations, and some people forget to ask for deviations, and then when the Auditor General says, we've got this particular problem, they then apply for, the, for, the, for National Treasury to say, we condone that. In other words, we forgive it. So as soon as they've offered that condemnation, then it falls away from the list. So they could have simply said, here are the condemnation applications that we want to have, uh, a whole range of them. And if National Treasury had said we condone all of them, you actually could have solved this problem. But clearly that's not the intention. And clearly that's not really particularly useful to anyone. So what they simply said was to say, look, we want to be able to deal with these issues eventually. However, it's not going to be an overnight process. So we need some time for us to be firstly identify what all of those irregularities were and then figure out how to hold people accountable. It's not going to take one year. It's going to take about two years. In fact, that was what Transnet had said, that they need two years in order to deal with this. And the National Treasury said, okay, fine, we're going to give you that breathing space for three years. At the end of the three years, the exemption expires. And then these current boards are going to be fully accountable for all these irregularities because they've promised that they're yeah. going to address them. That was the politics of the moment misread. Well, it was precisely the wrong organization that asked for an exemption because it's an organization that exists to piss off everyone. It's an organization where the instances of historic corruption have now accurately been buttressed, if you want to call it yeah. that, by the allegations by the person who was in charge of this organization for about three years who says the corruption is ongoing. So this is not an innocent organization that simply says, guys, we need your assistance in order to make our affairs better. This is an organization where historically it's been known to be corrupt and according to their own CEO yeah. is still corrupt. So of course you can't expect people to simply then accept the fact that you need a condemnation when you're the essence and the epicenter of corruption. Sandile, uh, notwithstanding that there has now been a U-turn and this exemption has been revoked, this the effect of this would have meant that the current board and the current executive 
uh, of ESCOM are not responsible for the misdeeds of the past board and the past executives. Given that that would have been the effect of it, is that a good precedent? Because I'm worried that if that were to hold, we'd find a situation where every state-owned enterprise will get a new board and a new uh, uh, set of executives, and the, new, and the new board and a new set of executives are like, you can't hold us to the sins of the past for pe- by people who we don't know and we, we didn't engage with. Give us a clean slate. We can't give every institution a clean slate, can we? Yeah, um, uh, fortunately, you've got uh, a chartered accountant in the studio, uh, but that is not how I understood the issue and, and, and where the, the problem came from. Um, um, just to be clear, on, the, on this issue, let's start here. The, 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 the minister has now said that he is going to go and consult with the Auditor General. Mm. Uh, which means that from a governance point of view, he went and made the announcement without actually consulting all the people fully, all the people that he needed to have consulted and made sure that he is offering something to the public. But that did he, he need to he, do that given that the statutory powers that pertain to this decision are exclusively within his ambit. Consultation with the Auditor General would just be a by-the-way uh, type of consultation. Um, there, there's, there's a reason also why I am saying this, because now he has said that he's going to go there. There's a reason yeah. why I, I, I am raising this, because in the withdrawal, the withdrawal is not permanent. He says that he's withdrawing for the time being so that he can take on board those things that he had not taken on board. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could be petty if you like, but if you read the first paragraph of the of the letter that he wrote, that the minister wrote to Mpomagwana granting him this, granting ESCOM this exemption, there's actually a mistake in there, in the actual letter itself. When he mentions the subsection, it doesn't mention all the subsections. He repeats one of the subsections. So meaning that is a subsection that he left out. Mm. So, so when you look at the time frame that he gave himself, I don't know of many processes of government where you apply on the 9th by the 30th, you've got a full, complete return. <laughs> you've got a full return answer. So, so I'm saying that if you are going to be dealing with the treasury, the, the wealth of the nation, uh, and you just do things haphazardly. That's the first failure. So, yeah. so, so let's get that out of the way, that there was a failure. Just to buttress the point, Kaya there says to you that perhaps they could have asked for condemnation. I'm just making a, a, an example. Yeah. Because when you start talking with other professionals, they give you other perspectives and other scenarios of what can be done about the problem that you have. So... So, so you need to do that in any case. And then when the public questions you, it can be clear that you've taken all possible scenarios into consideration. And I think that was not the case. Mm. Two, my understanding of the situation is that if you, if the requirement is that these things must be disclosed in the annual financial statement, 
Now, when we disclose them, then they are subject to the audit uh, of the annual financial statement, and that's what actually causes the, the qualification to happen. Mm. Um, so if you then say two categories, I'm going to remove them and subject them still to public scrutiny, but through the annual report, not through the annual financial statement. Uh, so that was the other thing that they did. And they said only the criminal component will then be left in mm, the annual mm. financial statement, yeah. which would be a much smaller component. Yeah. Uh, and, and for something to be classified as criminal, the, the criteria are very stringent, which then makes it clearly it's going to be a smaller component. Then that creates a situation where you are not exposing yourself to the risk that the rating agencies and your creditors are getting alarmed, unnecessarily alarmed and difficult in dealing with you. Okay. That, that is understood. But now I just want to make a point, another point that my main concern, this was, I have not come to my main concern about this. The letter itself is on point three, on point three of the letter itself. That is where I actually got worried as to whether actually these people deserve this break or not. Because when you read point three, there are five things that are listed there, which basically says the following. We have inadequate systems of control to timelessly detect and record irregular and fruitless and wasteful expenditure. We have inadequate systems of control, Mm. which means that uh, in any case, as this irregular expenditure continues to happen, wasteful expenditure, we don't have a way of even detecting what happened. Mm. So I will not read the balance of the five points. But what that tells me is that the people that are working there, whose job it is to make sure that they detect and record irregular, fruitless and wasteful expenditure, either do not know their jobs or you know, they don't okay. want to do that. Okay, that's, that's, that's a good and question to ask. Get an exemption yeah. or on the basis of continuing to employ those people there who are yeah. not going to do the job <laughs> and allow the thing to continue for three years. Yeah. Kaya, uh, auditors have a bad rap, particularly once in the private sector, but does ESCOM's internal auditors, are they do they suck at their jobs because they can't detect irregular and wasteful expenditure timelessly? <laughs> Next question. No, I, 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 uh, look, yeah, so the, the five points uh, uh, that my fellow panelists is referring to are five points that are actually raised by Deloitte in the audit report. So Deloitte audits um, ESCOM's financial statements, and they say that, look, not only do we have these irregular expenditures, but even in instances where ESCOM says this is the amount, their systems are so completely unfit for purpose, that number is a matter of speculation. So they Why don't is it unfit for purpose? Because... The reality here, and as Eskom would argue, is that, look, when people are stealing diesel, for example, uh, when people are putting the wrong type of coal in some power station, no one is sitting there documenting this to say this is when it happened and this is how it happened. So what they do is that they rely on some belated discovery of a process. So some of these things that they discover now, I think that started two or so, three years ago. So, gone, so the auditor has to go to the plant and ask the security guard, when did this particular truck come in? Exactly. And the security guard speculates. Yeah. As so, far as my memory serves, it was on this day. But I suppose that's how criminals work. They don't go around documenting their misdemeanors. So ESCOM records them as they discover <laughs> them. And the auditors are like, look, your systems are so 
in Cape of even trying to identify these things at inception, we may have a 100 billion rand problem today, but we don't know. It may be 150 billion rand, but we don't know because your systems just don't know how to track these things. So if you had a system that says, okay, you put in 100 rand, you, take, you get out 100 rand. That's a linear system. But unfortunately, for an organization like ESCOM, the linearities quite simply do not exist. How do we know what's happening to the coal that's supposed to be delivered at some fire station, uh, at some power station yeah. right now? We may discover in two or three months' time that well, actually, it wasn't coal that was delivered, so therefore it was, it was a breakdown. So those types of things, the auditors have said, look, you don't even have the systems that can actually say to us, by the way, this is the final number. So when you have problems like that, you actually have to invest in the systems that can at least say to your auditors, look, we have a way of tracking sure. it when these things start, not discovering them two or three years later, which is currently the case. That's the one. The more dangerous one is that oh, Deloitte comes back and says, well, even in instances where ESCOM has discovered that, look, all of us, uh, you know, messed up that transaction, so we raised it as a red flag. By the time we came back the week after, suddenly ESCOM had changed uh, that Oliver stole 100 rand. Now suddenly it's 50 rand. And then we say, what was the basis for the adjustment? And ESCOM cannot explain it. So they just make adjustments willy-nilly. They just make arbitrary adjustments that cannot be explained. Then there's another part that I also wrote about today in that, look, you would imagine that you and I, when we try to transact with ESCOM, they were going to give us so many documents to complete. Sure. And when one of those documents is going to be, are you tax compliant? I mean, yeah. they're not going to get into ESCOM's value chain if you're not tax compliant. Well, apparently that's just your problem because 626 million <laughs> rand, 626 million rand of last year's transactions were with non-tax compliant companies. What is the audit implication of doing business with non-tax compliant institutions? It's a qualification and that's why it's there. So this exemption is not going to deal with those issues because for as long as ESCOM thinks some people don't have to be tax compliant, when the law says they must be tax compliant, ESCOM will keep getting these qualifications. Right. Do the right audit and forensics tools exist that can solve some of those problems? So the management issues are what is the problem here. If ESCOM doesn't know how to run its own affairs, it doesn't matter which auditors you have because auditors are not permanently employed at ESCOM. Auditors come after the year end and then they get told, this is what we did, and then just look into it and then decide whether you believe that we've presented the, the situation fairly. So auditors are not employees of ESCOM. They simply come once in a while. They look at a sample of transactions and as it but turns surely out... Surely there are internal auditors that stick around throughout. Yeah, help. so the internal auditors are the ones that are probably creating the great tension point because they are part of management, of the management structure. Sure. So they are the ones that should be checking and monitoring ESCOM systems on a continuous basis to say, look, we think this system will be able to identify what's happening at that particular station. We think this system will be able to identify that this person they're dealing in dodgy matters. So the internal processes are the ones that clearly need a lot of reform. And until that reform ha happens, whenever the external auditors come, they're going to discover many more issues. Yeah. Let's move on to the politics of the matter. Did the politicians mess up? In Obviously. terms of in terms of the this request and the granting thereof of this exemption. Well, obviously, I mean, there's no dispute about that. So the moment I saw the Gazette, I thought it could be an April Fool's joke because the Gazette didn't make sense. The Gazette firstly referred to the wrong part of the PFMA. So when you read the Gazette, it says that we're giving you an exemption from X Y Z of the annual report. You know, that's the big problem here, because the annual report is the part one and part two document. 
What ESCOM wanted was an exemption from part one, which is the annual financial statements. So the Gazette should have said that you're getting a, you're being granted an exemption from reporting on these things in the annual, annual financial, financial statements, statements, not in the annual report. Because if you say it's exempt from the annual report, financial statements form part of the annual report. So in other words, the Gazette actually said this is an information blackout. And I knew that the Gazette was completely incorrect on that basis alone. But more importantly, the Gazette was the only document that was available to the public. So the public looks at this and like, well, this just doesn't make sense. So even whether they even knew that it was actually wrong in the yeah. terms of the words, they were like, but this doesn't make sense. So it only then, when you then get insight into the correspondence between the board chairman sure. and the minister, do you actually understand the reasoning? But if you've decided that the binding document, which is the Gazette, not the internal correspondent, should be as flimsy as it was, well, you cannot be surprised that people are like, what on earth is going on here? So it was the politicians that screwed this up spectacularly. Yeah. Uh, on to a slightly separate matter, but related. Uh, Sandile, we are now no longer are under a national state of disaster uh, but, um, pertaining to electricity in particular to give ESCOM and its related institutions and political principles the leeway to be able to make um you know decisions with agility that can turn the institution around what then does that mean of the role of the minister of electricity to whom um statutory powers we are yet to know of the you know there the, the are a number of 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 difficulties um as to, I, I actually don't even know what this Minister of Electricity is, is supposed to be busy with, and then I'll explain this. He visits politicians. Partic- uh, is he a spokesperson? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and I'll explain this, uh, because this was my worry before the, the appointment of the person, that government uh, created their, their plan um, this energy recovery plan, electricity recovery plan, around August last year, and formed the committee of ministers. Uh, there's about six ministers there in that committee. And the operator of that committee is the DG uh, mm. in the presidency. So, which means these people meet every month, if you like. They discuss what needs to be done about their and about electricity. Produce an action plan, uh, Tindy Baleni goes and implements it. She's the most senior DG, uh, I would think if she's a DG in the presidency, yeah. and then whoever is an operator, then goes and does that. And this is not a politician, it's an operator. It's a yeah. person who gets the job done. Then they produce this report every month, and every one of those reports was actually quite a successful report. Let alone the fact that the nature of the problems at ESCOM are not going to be solved in two months. But the work that you've been given for the next four weeks is actually getting done. So this is for the first time so we have a team of ministers and an executive that is actually getting the job done. Mm. So when you come up with this idea of a minister of electricity, are you then saying this minister is going to replace Kindi Lebaleni or replace who exactly in this thing? Because now, the committee is working functionally. There's no record anywhere that that committee is dysfunctional. The committee is actually succeeding even mm-hmm. in speeding up the applications processes, the environmental approvals, special concessions. They are able to arrange all of those things themselves. They didn't even need the state of disaster yeah. that was there. So, 
So I have a problem, and then the law, the, 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 the lawyers, the state attorney, has actually told Afri Forum, who applied, well, actually taking them to court about this thing, that actually the whole thing was a mistake. They are withdrawing and they are going to pay the money for their legal fees. They are not cutting to that anymore as the state. So meaning that the, whatever successes the committee was doing, the Minister of Electricity has got to continue with those. Although I hear him now on the radio saying that, no, he'll take some of the things that were there in the state of disaster and use them. I don't know how legal, how lawful that is going to be if it does such things, except if they were already corresponding to the uh, plan that was already in, in, in implementation. So the long and short of it is that our politicians are not sober. They are not, really, they are not <laughs> doing this thing that is called yeah. due diligence. Yeah. They are not doing a due diligence. They are not exercising, you know, in company law, they call it the duty of care and skill, you know, uh, that you, you take so much caution. These are big billions of friends, people's lives, and you do everything on the matchbox. Mm. And, 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 and again, uh, yeah. has said to you, even the very Gazette thing was actually wrong, totally yeah. wrong. Yeah. Just maybe, and, uh, and that caused the political crisis by itself. That's yeah. right. You shouldn't be qualified to keep a job at National Treasury if you can produce a Gazette like that. Sure. <laughs> I wonder what the DG of National Treasury will say about that. Kaya, just... We do not have a DG at National Treasury. Well, I need you to keep up. No, no, the no. The president no. has been too busy to uh, find one. I mean, it's not like uh, Ishmael Mamoniat is not working. He's at he's work every day. He's DG. He's but he's, he's, he's there. Oh, he's doing he's his job. He's going to be like, hey, you asked me a DG and I'm not the one. <laughs> what does Butler do on a day to day that you see of value? He visits power stations. And look, I do think that perhaps there's some value in him getting a granular understanding of what's happening out there instead of him being a, a desktop minister who simply sure. says, tell me, Eskom, what you think the problems are and I'm going to pretend I know what you're doing. So I do think that there's some value in him actually familiarizing himself with the terrain so that by the time he starts making particular decisions, because at this stage, I don't think he's actually made any substantive decisions. So by Does the he time have he statutory starts... powers yet? Because the president promised us he'll tell us what those are. We just haven't seen a gazette of it yet. <laughs> I don't know if we should want to be looking looking at new gazettes at this particular <laughs> point in time because that creates particular problems. Um, yeah, I don't know if they've been well-defined. And of course, the question of how to define his powers and distinguish between what the DPE does, what the DMRE does, and all this. And, well, up until now, what Cocta was going to do because the state of disaster brought them into the picture. I don't think we've seen a very clear definition of what the parameters of his uh, role and responsibility is. And, of course, maybe they're still trying to define yeah. that by him going around and saying, I think this is what my role needs to be. Maybe that's the approach. We don't know. Give me a soundbite. In the last 60 seconds, we have... What can ESCOM do to fix their balance sheet? Because this is why we're having this conversation. <laughs> Nothing. Only the state can step in. I think when you owe 400 billion rand and you do not raise enough revenue to run your operations, you're never going to fix your balance sheet. You may just manage your income statement on the issue that you may just break even, but that balance sheet has become so toxic, only a state intervention can step in and fix it. So a NERSA increase, tariff increase is not going to help that? 
No, because that deals with, you know, the ongoing recurring expenses. It does, NESA will never ever say, oh, we think you've got a 400 billion rand hole, so therefore let us double the tariff in order to help you that. It's never going to If we happen. take away two thirds of the debt burden, surely that gives some level of relief towards fixing the balance sheet? Well, only it simply reduces their interest costs, which are quite significant. So that means that that cash flow can be redirected towards actually running the operations better. If they run the operations better and they reduce the maintenance costs over time, then of course you're going to see that 10 or 15 year turnaround, but it's definitely not going to happen organically. So not in the next five years? Not in your lifetime. What? Well, you'll be dead soon. Get out of here. <laughs> it is 11 o'clock. Thank you so much to you for your time, Sandy Lesoan, as well as Kaya Sitoli. Really appreciate it. Give me a call. What are your thoughts on the conversation we just had? 086-000-2032. I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. Greg Ho says your news.